Good morning. My name is Hang. I'm the worship pastor here at Fairfax Bible Church. Normally, you see me holding my guitar on the stage, but today I get to hold my Bible, um, and it just so it's been such a wonderful week to prepare God's word for you. Uh, this morning, we're going to study the book, uh, the Psalm one, which is a wisdom psalm on the subject of happiness. Rich, have you want to be happy this morning? All right, we're going to get into that in a moment. Okay, um, Psalm one is a wisdom psalm. And uh, wisdom psalm are designed to teach and give a lot of instruction in practical life. You're going to have a lot of instruction this morning, a lot of application, and that's okay. I just pray and hope that you would just take one principle from God's Word, one, and just run with it and apply it this week and experience the joy of the Lord. Amen? The world said in order for you to be happy, you need to have the BLT. You'll be like, what? What's the BLT? Well, the board said you gotta have the brain. Everybody point to your head, right? You gotta be smart. You gotta have the look. And then you gotta have the what? The talent, the skill, right? The world said beautiful people, um, happy people are beautiful people, talented and smart. But the Bible tells us that that's not true. The Bible said that. True happiness is not found inside of us or in any activities that we do. But true happiness is only found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Turn to your neighbor and say amen. Here's our big ideas for us this morning. The blessed life is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he will help us hate evil and delight in God's law. True happiness is only found in Christ. And he will help us hate evil and, and delight in God's law. So perhaps the most important question for us this morning is this. Do you know Jesus? Amen? Do you know the Son of God? Are you submitted to the Son? And are you delighting and treasuring the Son above all else? Because he's the key to your ultimate happiness. So someone begin assuming that salvation has already taken place. Here's a little pop quiz for you for 100 points, $100, right? Here, here we go. How does an Old Testament person get saved? I don't have a multiple choice for you. You just have to know it or not, right? The answer is by faith in Yahweh and his substitution atonement for sin. Abraham believed and he was counted as righteous. Pop quiz number two. This is worth 1,000 points. Here we go. What about this? How does a New Testament person get saved? Same way, thank you. That was point for Mike. By faith in Jesus Christ, the substitution atonement for our sin. So in essence, the Old Testament saying look forward to the cross and resurrection event. And we, New Testament people, that's you, look backward to the cross and resurrection event. Amen? So regarding our salvation, it is faith alone, Christ alone, and, and, and uh, faith alone, Christ alone, and grace alone. You can check that out in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. But regarding our sanctification, the process of becoming more holy and becoming more Christ-like, the Bible said this, Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So yeah, Jesus saved you, but you're not going to sit around and watch TV all day long. No, he said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But, verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, right? So a pastor once said this. I love this quote. 
if the grace that saved you don't change you, that is not grace. I don't know what that is. If the grace that saved you don't change you, that's not grace. Bible said, because faith without action is dead. Have you like uh, faith without action is dead. Transformation happened as a result of abiding in the Son and allowing the Son to bear the fruit of the Spirit because Jesus lives inside of you. Therefore, He can hate sin and fight off sin and evil and, and worldly pleasure at the same time. Jesus will help you to delight in God and His law. Amen? Amen. Here's the first point for us this morning. There are dangers for those who walk in the path of righteous. There are dangers. Verse 1 lists three dangers the righteous, a happy person, is to avoid. First of all, the righteous is to avoid listening to the advice of the ungodly. He is to be in the world, but he's not to listen to the counsel of the world. Look at verse 1. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. The Hebrew word walks gives the idea of someone going along or following the footsteps of someone else. And the word counsel simply means advice plan or scheme. The righteous or happy person needs to be careful lest he listen to the advice and go along with the plans of the ungodly. In other words, he is to be their friends, but they cannot be his advisors. Notice the world is always ready to give their opinions, whether you want it or not. Mike is laughing over there. This may be in the form of literature, art, Music, advertisement, entertainment, education, politics, and so on. In all of this, the world mocks the true God with their self-glory. Here's the first application for you parents this morning. Parents, do you know what your children are listening to behind their in-ears? Do you know what they're watching on their devices, on their phones and iPad? Are these gospel-centric, God-glorifying messages? Or are these godless, easy entertainment of the world that is filth and trash? I mean, there's nothing wrong for the Christian to watch Netflix or CNN News or Fox News or go to the movies or concert. I recently watched Top Gun. It was wonderful. I think Christians should have the best, you know, kind of delight because they have the grand narrative of the, of the Bible. There's nothing wrong to enjoy entertainment, but the blessed person is constantly interpreting the messages of the world with the messages of God's Word. Amen? But in order to do that, the psalm suggests that we need to learn to think biblically. So here's a really good, good question for all of us to ask ourselves every day in all of our decision: What does the Bible say? I know a lot, many of you are doing that. I'm doing that. But check that out. What does the Bible say? Will this glorify God and reflect His Word and His character or not? Filter the messages of the world through the living Word of God. The righteous is to avoid, avoid listening to the advice of the ungodly. Secondly, he is to avoid living like the ungodly. Blessed is a man who walks not in counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. Sinners are those who deliberately chose a, a way of life that is contrary to the Word of God. I know what God's Word said. I know this is wrong, Mike, but I'm going to do it anyway. There is a rebellious, 
a stubbornness in the heart of sinners. Anybody try raising a two years old? You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Or look in the mirror. You see that stubbornness, right? There's a rebellious. He's slave to his emotion, his desire, and certainly he's slave to sin. At first, you notice that he's walking, right? But now he's standing, right? He's standing to stand is to come to a complete stop. We struggle at a stop sign, right? And then he's motionless. Early on, this person might be listening to the advice of the ungodly out of curiosity, but now he has made a complete stop. In fact, he's now participating in the rebellions. From thinking like the world, now he behaves like the world, and you can't tell them apart. I'll give you an example of what I meant. Israel as a nation continued to follow the advice of the pagan nations up to this point and eventually promoting that kind of lifestyle. Yahweh said to them in 1 Samuel chapter 8, let me paraphrase, you don't need human kings, for I am your ultimate king. Your human kings will take your daughters and turn them into slaves. You still want kings? He will take your, the best crops. He will take your servant, and he will make you, his, make you his slave. Listen to how the people respond after a stern warning from Yahweh not to install human king. First Samuel 8, 19 and 20. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No. But there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us to fight our battles. Really? What are you smoking, Israel? Your kings will fight your battles? What was King Saul doing when Goliath showed up and mocked God and his army? Where was King David, right? He was walking on the top of his, uh, the palace, while his men, when his mighty men are fighting his battle in the battlefront. Seriously? In spite of the stern warning to Israel, they still want him in king. Why? Because they listen to the counsel of wicked nations. They listen to worldly advice and opinions, and therefore they rejected God's counsel. Have you allowed what started out to be curiosity but eventually turned into addictive habits? Addict, addictive behaviors? Have you allowed ungodly friendship pull you away from the things of God? The righteous, blessed, happy person is to avoid listening to the ungodly and living like the ungodly. Not only that, is to avoid promoting the lifestyle of the ungodly. Notice the three groups of three in this verse. <clears throat> we look at each from top to the uh, bottom and then left to right. Group one, first he's walking with the wicked out of curiosity. We talked about that. Then he stands to participate, and now we find him sitting, settling down, being comfortable in the company of the wicked. The second group, counsel means advice, ways are more than advice. is a path that gives direction to a goal, and sit is a position at the table of the scoffer. Group three, the wicked. Wicked is a generic word for evil. Sinner refers to those who break God's law. And scoffers are braggers who brag about breaking God's law. Scoffers can scoff either with their mouth or with their lifestyle. The writer wants us to see this downward spiral effect of sin in this verse. If we don't destroy sin, eventually sin will destroy us. 
Let me show you what I mean. In Genesis 1 and 2, uh, describe a perfect world where Adam and Eve live in perfect harmony with God, with creation, with one another, right? They can eat to their heart content and not wor- worry about waking. That was a joke. No, that wasn't a joke, right? They live in a perfect world. What happened in Genesis 3? We have the fall of humanity. Adam and Eve disobeyed God and brought death and punishment to the rest of creation. And just one chapter later, Genesis 4, what happened? You have the first murder. Cain killed his brother Abel out of jealousy and anger. First death. Genesis 5 records the, the first census. Basically, so-and-so lived certain years and he died. And he died and he died and he died. Consequence of sin. The wage of the sin is death, the Bible said. What happened in Genesis chapter 6? We have, story, we have a story of the flood. God was grieved by the sin of humanity, so he decided to wipe out the entire human race out of mercy and, and justice. In just six short chapters, humanity spiraled downward, 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 and downward to a complete total destruction. Maybe some of us are experiencing this spiral downward effect of sin this morning. Maybe you feel trapped. Maybe you feel stuck. Just let me ask you this one question. If you are trapped in sin and slave to sin, do you want to be free? Do you want to be unstuck? Do you want to be free? And if you do, the Bible said Jesus can set you free. Jesus can help you. The Bible said, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you need to want it. You have to want it. If you want to be free from your sin, from addiction, you can come at the end of a service, talk to one of our elders, your small group leaders, talk to me. We would love to pray with you. We would love to help you get unstuck and get on the path freedom from sin. But notice Jesus also said this, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. In other words, take sin seriously. If your boyfriend causes you to sin this morning, get rid of your boyfriend. That's what it means. That wasn't a joke. If your girlfriend causes you to sin, get rid of her. If your phone causes you to sin, destroy your phone. You can live without your boyfriend. You can live without your girlfriend. You can live without your phone or the internet or the TV or your favorite alcohol beverages. But you cannot live without Christ. He is far more important, more beautiful, more worthy, more treasurable than all of creation. Guess what? If we are so get caught up in God's creation... Imagine meeting the Creator Himself. Wouldn't He be more addictive? Maybe it's the wrong word. Maybe wouldn't He be more pleasurable, enjoyable, delightful than all of creation? The reason why we're so addicted to our sin and habit is because we do not know the God of the universe. That's why. Come to know Jesus, then you can get rid of all the sin. Another, another way to fight sin, Scripture said, 
is through walking in honesty, transparency, and humility with the people of God. This is probably my top three favorite verses in the Bible. I'm not sure I have it on the screen or not. Hebrews 3.13. He said, exhort or encourage one another daily so that we wouldn't be heartened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is blinding. You know, a blind person, they, they know that they are blind, and so they kind of arrange some stuff in their lives to help with that. But a spiritually blind person, everybody point to yourself, we all have blind spots. We do not see our blind, blindedness, and so we need the ministry of the body of Christ to show us our blind spot. Paul Tripp said this. I love it. Um, there are two fundamental questions we all are asking from others every day and in the church, in a small group, in a home. When you walk in this morning, you are asking that. And so the first question he, he said is, do you love me? I ask that. Do you love me? You know. But the second question is even more scarier. If you know me, do you love me? The blessed man, the happy man, isn't afraid to confess sin and his struggle before his fellow brothers or before God because he knows that God loves him infinitely. God knows the depth of his soul. He knows, can you imagine putting all your motives on the table this morning? That should shock you. All your desire, all your pride, all your lust, all your anger, all your frustration, all your sin, and yet God said, I love you. I cannot love you anymore. I cannot love you any less because God is love. He doesn't love us based on our performances, but he loves us because of his son's performance. Love this quote by Tim Keller. He said, You are more sinful than you ever thought you were, and you are more loved than you ever dreamed you could be. I remember confessing my sin, the same sin, over and over again to a friend of mine back in Moody Seminary, and he looked at me and said, Hang, what you're telling me is probably just 10% of your sin. You're probably, probably pretty worse. I said, Thanks, Mike. That was not encouraging. <laughs> but it was. And then he said, But Jesus knew that. And he loves you infinitely, and he forgives you. There's one guy in my small group 10 years ago, whenever we ask him how he's doing, you know, there's a moment you kind of talk about surfacey stuff, the news, and your grandmother's cat and all that. But there's a moment where you actually have to pray for one another. I say, how can we pray for you, brother? Tell us. He said, you know, and this anointed the heck out of me. He said, better than I deserve. Every single time. I said, that sounds really holy and everything like that, but I don't know what that means. How can I pray for you? Better than I deserve. What is the condition of his heart? I don't know. Better than I deserve, right? In your small group setting, when you have break out in prayer, how will your small group friends pray for you and love you and encourage you and experience the promise of uh, uh, Hebrew 3.13 if you don't open up and be transparent and be honest and share your struggle. Amen? Share your struggle and be honest and be vulnerable. They cannot. 
And so my encouragement to you is open up. Walk in transparency, humility, honesty. Be the biggest loser in your small group. That's my, uh, you know, model. I want to be like the worst sinner in my small group because I'm not afraid of you because God knew everything about me and he loves me. So why am I afraid of you? The blessed man doesn't need to put on his game face. He doesn't need to hide or keep people at arm's length because he knows that he's loved and accepted by his Savior. So we can either destroy sin by delighting in, in Christ, delighting in his word, walking in community, or sin will destroy us. The psalmist tells us what not to do in verse 1, and in verse 2, he tells us what to do. Yes, there are great danger for those who walk in the path of the righteous, but there's great pleasure as well. But his delight, verse 2, is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The word law in Hebrews uh, is the word for Torah. Turn to your neighbor and say Torah. Torah, all right. Torah means direction, rule, or instruction. We are to delight in the instruction or the whole counsel of God's Word, which includes the Old Testament and the New Testament. John Piper said this, when you delight in something, you honor it, you glorify it, right? And you can't get enough of it. But let's just be honest, there are moments at 6.30 in the morning, right? It's 6.30 in the morning where I don't feel like delighting in, in God's Word. In those moments, you have two choices. One, you can follow your heart, your emotion, your desire, or you can submit your emotions to the counsel of God's Word and His command. And every time when I obey God, even when it's hard, the feeling of delight and joy and contentment will follow. There is a sweet joy that comes from walking in obedience, especially in the hard things. And perhaps some of us haven't tasted that joy because we have not walked in obedience to God's Word. The word meditate literally means to mutter, to groan, or to contemplate. The time when the psalm was composed, Israel did not have printed copy of God's Word, right? So in order to meditate on God's law, they must memorize it, right? That's the, the muttering and the groaning. Notice meditate is in the imperfect tense. That means it is an ongoing thing, hence the metaphor day and night. We're not to meditate just on Sunday or Tuesday, you know, in a small group, but we need the Word of God every single moment throughout the day. Learn to meditate. In application, I'm going to give you a few ways of my favorite uh, methods of meditation. And I just confess that I don't do though, I don't, I, I haven't graduated from them. I'm still working on this. And also, I struggle with them. So this is me sharing my struggle with you. Uh, number one, reading the word out loud. The Bible is meant to be read out loud. Did you know that? The book of Romans said, faith comes from hearing the word, right? So sing the word, preach the word, speak the word, share the word, and, and, and preach the gospel to yourself often. We have a family devotional every, every night, and we read the word together, we pray together, and I'm trying to, you know, instill into them singing. You know, how awful it is. The worship pastors, kids are not singing. I'm just kidding. But I'm trying to instill singing into our family. Um, read the word out loud. I encourage you to do that this week if you haven't. I love this second one. Read the same passage but in a different location. I was on a mission trip to Indonesia 
and had a layover in South Korea one day. And one morning, I was on top of the rooftop meditating on Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, you know, and so on. And when I looked out, I saw so many red crosses. And I realized that there were churches, not hospital, but churches should be hospital sometime, right, spiritually. And I was so, oh, I was so thankful. I said, thank you, Lord. The heavens declare your glory, and the people of Seoul recognize you, and they worship you, and they love you. I was like, let me join in in them, learn some Korean songs. Not really. I was so excited. The next day, we flew to Jakarta in Indonesia, and I found myself in my hotel room, and, and I looked out the window, and I saw so many temples, so many mosques, and with loudspeaker blaring out the, you know, the prayer, and I was meditating on the same passage. The heaven declared the glory of God, but the people did not recognize. They do not praise you, God. And I found myself weeping, confessing the sin of the nation on the floor. Same passage, different situation, a different response in your worship to God. Could it be that God is trying to show you His heart, His will, his kingdom, his purposes, his glory, as you engage your city in your work, school, and travel. So open up the Bible, not when you're driving, obviously, but when you're taking the train, when you're walking, and listen to the voice of God. Listen to his heart. Listen to what he's telling you about you and about the city you are living in. Scripture memorization. This is my favorite that was, that was a joke. <laughs> All right, never mind. This is probably the hardest, right? Let's just be honest. There's some truth in that. This is probably the hardest. And so you could be creative. My wife put a little, you know, postcard, card, index card, and put them all around the house, bathroom, bedroom, mirrors, and such. And it's wonderful for our children. And uh, I'll just share a quick story. In one season, um, I memorized 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with my pastoral team pastoral staff in the church, and, this, and, and it was such a blessing. It brought our team together, and we were able to just grow in depth. But I had no idea that God was preparing me for a very difficult season of ministry and life and marriage a year later in the same passage. So 2 Corinthians 4 became my mentor, my encouragement, my nourishment, my shield, my strength in that difficult season of ministry. And I'm forever grateful for God's goodness, for His sovereignty, looking ahead, and He knew exactly what I needed. I needed 2 Corinthians 4. Maybe you can memorize a passage or a book together in your ladies' connection meeting or the men one-on-one or in your small group. Honestly, I find it easier and more enjoyable when I memorize Scripture with somebody else. It's easier to do that. So encourage one another in that. Verse 3. He is like a tree planted by a stream of water that yields its fruit in its season, and his leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. There are danger, but also pleasure for those who walk in the path of the righteous. Thirdly, there is abundant fruitfulness for those who walk in the path of the righteous. I'm trying to find, uh, may I see the next slide, a picture of the tree and fruit and stream, and I couldn't, so I photoshopped in some fruit. I didn't want to bother Kylene, you know, she was helping with so many things. But if I don't tell you, you probably don't know it, except there's apple and cherry, because I like them. And so this is an apple cherry tree, maybe in heaven, we'll get to eat like 
many fruit in one tree. You can use your imagination as you read the Bible and stuff. Um, where was I? The psalmist portrayed the blessed man with his, the image of this tree, planted by the stream of water. As the root of this tree is planted by the stream, and so the blessed man is rooted in Christ, the living word. As a result, he yields fruit in, 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 in this season. Fruit here speaks of the many blessings in the Christian's life. Let me show you what I mean. Growing uh, godly characters, hating sin, cultivating the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, winning people to Christ, giving God our service and good works, growing in the knowledge of Christ. Spiritual fruit is a mark of, disciple, of a disciple. Do the people closest to you recognize the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Do a fruit inventory in your small group, with your small group this week. Give them permission to share the Christ-like characteristic that they recognize in you. And also, give them permission to share what they want to see in you. You know, Bob, you're so knowledgeable in the Bible and everything like that, but you know that you always complain about your boss? Maybe you could work on turning those complaints into praise. And make sure to thank the people for pointing something out in you, you know. Don't, don't chew the head off. Thank them. You know, Susie... Um, you are just a very sweet lady who serves the Lord and ready to give and give and give. But it would be nice to have you come on time. Our school will start at 7.30, but you always come at 8.30. We want to, you know, be blessed with your presence. So come on time. Would you do that this week? There's no way we can see ourselves, especially at a blind spot. We need the mutual ministry of the body. Give your friends, your small group people, permission to speak into your life. Notice the phrase, in this season. Most trees in North America bear fruit in one season, I think. But believers can bear fruit in all seasons. You can't say, because I'm in a season of singleness, I can't bear the fruit of joy or contentment. Right? You can't do that. Singleness is a gift. God can use your singleness for His glory, and for the edification of the body. But to be honest, Canada and I are so impressed with the single people in this church. We're so impressed of the way you love Christ and live sin. A mentor, raise your hand if you're a mentor. Seven of you. Don't be afraid. I'm, this might be, I'm about to praise you. Mentors, I'm so imp- we're so impressed. Thank you so much for spending time with our you know, teenagers, uh, children, or kids. Loving on them, giving them God's word, praying with them, walking with them through the journey of teenaging. Ian, you are doing an incredible job with Seiji. Thank you so much. Your impact on him is just not only on him, but you have all the impact on all of our family. Do you know that? We all want to be tall like you. <laughs> and and all, all of my kids start drinking milk because of Ian. But seriously, seriously. Seiji is a better person because of his mentor, because of what God is doing in that relationship. But I know there will be winter season, you know, dry season spiritually in our, in our lives, where maybe you are, are really hurting, perhaps a season of sickness, depressions or anxiety, grieving over a loss. Maybe some of you are in that dry season today, this morning. The fruit in this winter season may look different. You don't have to compare yourself with others. If there's one thing that I can say to you is this. 
it is okay that you're not okay. It took me a long time to accept that statement. I wasn't okay in the previous season, but I tried to be okay, and that was not good. It's okay that you're not okay. You don't have it. You don't have to have it all together. This season will not define you. This too will pass. Jesus loves you, and the body of Christ is here for you. Tim Keller said this, It is not the quality or the quantity of your faith that saves you, but it is the object of your faith. If I can go back to my lowest season, I always felt guilty. You know, I say this to myself, only if I have more faith, maybe my wife wouldn't be that sick. Maybe I wouldn't, in, wouldn't be in this circumstance. Only if I have faith. Let me give you this story, illustration. Some of the Israelites had great faith when they crossed the Red Sea, right? They'd be singing and dancing, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, baby, let my people go. Eh. Great faith. Yahweh's going to deliver. He's going to, mm, we're going to have victory. And then there are people who are, had no faith or little faith, people like me and perhaps like you. Look at the mud. It's wet. Don't touch that. That's Ebola right there. Kids, do not touch that. Of course, he touched it. My youngest love to pick up stone and put it in his pocket. Don't touch that. That's yucky. Or they'd be looking backward and saw Pharaoh's army chasing them. I told you we should have stayed in Egypt. At least there's a roof over our house, and now we're all going to drown. We're going to die. Ah, no faith whatsoever. But eventually, they crossed the Red Sea, right? So here's a question for you. Was it their great faith? Or little faith that delivered them from the Red Sea? No, it wasn't. It was the object of their faith. It was the object. It was Yahweh who delivers them. Not the mantras of your faith or the littleness of your faith. I love this hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things on earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glorious grace. In, your, in this winter dry season, stop looking inward. Pain can make us very self-absorbed. I've been there. I'm still in it. Pain can make us very self-absorbed. Look up and see your Savior. Look up and see Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Philippians 1.6, I think he said, have confidence in this. He who began a good work in you will carry you to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. The object of your faith is going to carry you, not you, not you. What does fruitfulness look like for an older person, someone who has no kids and in the retirement season? Let me give you an example. Uh, this is my mother, Dorcas. She's 76 years old. Uh, she's in the season of retirement, and my father passed away a few years ago. And so at home in Philadelphia, she'll be helping the immigrants, elderly, to go to the hospital and help them with translation. And then the rest of the time, she would take on mission trips. And so at one point, she spent 10 years in China. I said, Mom, that's a long mission trip. 10 years in China, helping the orphans, 
And every winter, she would have bronchitis. I remember, I said, Mom, come home. Yeah? You're like 60 or whatever. Just come home. I said, it's fine, it's fine. Just collect my body when I'm done. So you can't argue with your mother. That's another principle. Don't argue with your mom. She was always right. And, and, and recently, she partnered with a church in Dubai, and they love her so much, they offer a part-time job. I said, Mother, Dubai is like 125 degrees. Are you sure about this? Don't argue with your mom. And so she'll be going back to Dubai in, the, in September. In fact, we have a few friends from Dubai here. Wave your hand, guys. Thank you for visiting us today. And she'll be bearing the fruit of the gospel. I said, wow, what costs an older person? I wish I had half of her strength and stamina when I'm 76. And what caused an older person in the retirement season to be so fired up about God, fired up about mission? I think two things. One is because she's rooted in Christ. Christ gave her that strength. Secondly, I think as you meditate on the word of Christ, as you meditate on the gospel, right, there's something beautiful. You be so in love with Jesus. But at the same time, there's a huge burden for you to take the gospel to the people who do not know Jesus. And I was so convicted by this. I have neither. I don't love Jesus nor sinful people. I love me. I love me. I was on the floor just weeping at this point. I said, Lord, I can't preach this. I'm a hypocrite. I love me more than anything in the world. Maybe if you're honest, you are too. Some, something beautiful happened when we re rehearse the gospel and delight in Christ. We will love him and we will love people. Old age, retirement season, winter season, singleness, there are no excuse. They're not excuse for us not to love Christ and live sense and bear fruit for the gospel. Amen? As long as we are abiding in Christ and in his word, we will produce fruit. Verse 3. And so his leaves does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. I love this. This simply means that the blessed man is stable and secure even in the midst of calamity because he's rooted in Christ. Sure, there are great danger for those who walk on the path of righteous. There are great pleasure and fruitfulness for those who walk on the path of righteous. And lastly, there is only judgment for the ungodly. There is a big contrast here in the Hebrew text. The wicked are not so. This is an emphatic denial. In English, it can be translated as something like this. The way of the wicked is nothing like the way of the righteous. No way, Jose. Uh-uh, I don't think so. The way of the wicked is nothing like the way of the, the righteous. And so wicked is being portrayed as chaff. Chaff is the husk of grain that are separated during threshing. Chaff is inedible, dry, scaly, protective casing of seed. Basically, chaff is useless and worthless, and therefore the analogy being tossed in the wind. Eventually, chaff will be thrown to the fire to be burned, which is an analogy for torment and judgment. Verse 5, Therefore the wicked would not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The wicked would not stand, meaning they cannot endure the judgment of God, right? In verse 1, notice the righteous are called to live in separation from the wicked. But in the last day, sinners are not allowed even stand to stand in the midst of the righteous. What a contrast. Verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I love the word know. 
In Hebrew, no means he's committed. He's intimately involved in and aware of the life of the righteous. Aren't you glad this morning the, the God of the universe knows you, everything about you, and yet he still loves you? But the way, but the wicked, Jesus said to them in the last day, depart from me, I never knew you. Would you, Tim, would you come on up as I close our time this morning? Let's just be honest for a second. How many of us can say that we have obeyed God perfectly this week? Chrissy said no. Thank you. How many of us can say that we shun evil and delight in God all the time? No. How many of us delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on the Lord day and night? We can't. None of us can say that. But there's one, there's one person who can say that he shunned evil and obeyed God perfectly every single time. He doesn't miss the mark. The Bible said Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And therefore, he can sympathize with us. Jesus was in the world, but he is not polluted by the world. Jesus was in the world, but the world has no effect on him because he's rooted in his Father and he's delighting in his Father's word. Notice that even in his last dying breath on the cross, in his lowest season, in his most accruciating, painful moment of his life, he was able to bear fruit and be a blessing for all of humanity. Scripture says he suffered. His suffering became our greatest comfort. His rejection became our ultimate acceptance. His death brought us life. By his wounds, we are healed. In his poverty, we are, we are rich. We made rich. In his condemnation, we are loved and forgiven and accepted. And so here is a big idea again this morning. The world said you need to be beautiful. And smart and talented and skillful in order to be happy. But the Bible said, happy is a person who trusts Jesus, his finishing work on the cross, and who delight. Jesus will help you to delight in the word of the Lord. Jesus will help you to hate evil. You can't. I love the second song we sang earlier. It's by the Spirit of God. God is pleased with you this morning, not because you're so awesome, not because you're so faithful. He's pleased with you because you are in Jesus. And the Father told the Son, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And if we are in the Son, Fairfax Bible Church, if you are in the Son this morning, God is pleased with you. Chew on that. Why don't you take a moment, church, and bow your head and just thank God for sending His Son. And I'll say a prayer for us.